You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. The first show I ever actually produced was uh, was when I was an agent, and it was a, an old play called The Ghost Train by Arnold Ridley, who subsequently was better known as one of the actors in the television series over here called Dad's Army. Um, and I have to tell you, it lost every single penny and more. <laughs> and it was, and I had a wonder. Despite that, it was quite an enjoyable experience. And so, you know, well, you know what the drugs like. Hal, I carried on taking it, and then uh, went went on went on to do various other shows over the years. Hi, everyone. This is Hal Luftig with my Broadway Podcast Network show, Broadway Biz where every episode I will chat with my friends, some of the top theater professionals in the business, about the business of Broadway. Come join the Broadway biz. You'll be a Broadway whiz. You'll learn to raise cash to open your smash. You'll be all the rage from the pitch to the stage. In no time you'll know the business of show. My guest today is Nick Salmon, director of Playful Productions in London's West End. As a producer in the West End and on tour, Nick has over 80 credits to his name. I most recently worked with him on the West End production of Kinky Boots. Nick has a huge wealth of knowledge on producing and theater managing. I'm so grateful he's taken the time today to share what he knows with us on this episode of Broadway Biz. Hey, Nick, how are you? I'm very well, Hal. Thank you. It's lovely, lovely to hear you. Oh, it's always lovely to talk to you. I can't wait until the day I can actually see you. It, one of my highlights of any year is getting over, getting on a plane and getting over to the UK and um, seeing shows, seeing you, having dinner with you. I should tell my listeners, if they don't already know, when you have any meal with the British, it usually involves at least one, if not two bottles of wine. Uh, there have been many times, as Nicola test, that I have stumbled literally back to my hotel. So it is, uh, it is one of the treats I, I look forward to because I don't get to do that here. I still, in, in case uh, listeners don't know, uh, Nick and I worked together very closely for the past many years, uh, bringing Kinky Boots over to the Adelphi Theater. And Nick was so instrumental in not only making sure it got a home and thrived on the West End, but also uh, the UK tour, which um, is more complicated over there than, than touring shows over here. So um, whenever you need anything on the UK side, Nick Salmon is your man. Nick also owns and runs a company called Playful Productions. And I was wondering, Nick, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about Playful. Yeah. Uh, we, we started Playful uh, 10 years ago. We're just 10. And I started it with two partners, Matthew Byamshaw and Nia Janis, both of whom I'd worked with for quite a while before as a company called Act Productions. 
So we left ACT and we set up Playful and it's been great fun and we've had a, a wonderful time. Playful was set up to uh, produce plays and musicals in the West End and in the regions and to then exploit them further where possible. And it was also set up not only to produce but to general manage. So anything we produce or co-produce, we would general manage ourselves. Um, and then we also have the great fun of um, managing shows for other people. And indeed, Kinky Boots was one of one of those shows recently, which we did with Hal, and we managed it for him and his partners. And we took a little producing position in it, but it was it was a great great fun show, and we had a good time, and we. We enjoy doing the uh, the managing and the co-producing. We enjoy doing the producing. We still produce in London quite a lot of plays as a company. We've uh, the three of us have got a background, separate backgrounds in plays, and you can still, if you're lucky and have a hit, make money on plays in London. So we do quite a few plays, and we love doing the big musicals and the small musicals. So we do a bit of everything, really. How do you divide up the responsibilities between you, Matthew? Well, it sort of happens production by production, but Nia and I basically do the general management side of the productions. Matt basically does the producing side of the productions. But um, when he's producing, uh, we both get involved. And when we're general managing, he always knows what's going on, although he doesn't take an active interest in that. But I mean, there are some productions where I get very involved with Matt on the producing or Nia gets very involved with Matt on the producing, even if uh, Matt is leading it. And there are some productions where, you know, maybe Matt isn't so involved, but one of us is producing them. So it's a sort of it's a bit of a sort of depends who's got the enthusiasm for the show at the time, because, you know, as you know better than I, Hal, if you're if you're going to produce a show, you have to have bags and bags of enthusiasm for it, the subjects, the cast, the stars, etc. And uh, whichever us, of us has the real enthusiasm for the show tends to be the one that uh, dri drives it. Do you find or notice there are differences in how you look at things or how you might reevaluate things wearing several different hats? I think the main difference is in who's making the decisions. Because if we're not producing, we're not making the decisions. We're working for the producer who is making the decisions and we're managing. So we will lay out all the options to the producer on any on any given item and leave and it's the producer that finally makes the decision frequently with our advice and you know if we when we get on well with producers we normally you know there's a there's a working relationship that it just all clicks in and it goes very smoothly but ultimately you know, the it's the producer that, you know, makes the final decisions, carries the risk, raises the money, etc. And we will spend a lot of time on some shows liaising between various co-producers because, you know, you have to involve everyone that is entitled to be involved. So it's um it's a sort of uh, it's an art of looking after people and giving them advice. And particularly if a producer isn't based in London, it's a matter of keeping them wherever they are, New York or wherever, keeping them up to speed with the local circumstances and what needs to be done urgently, quickly or 
next week or next year or whatever. And I know you did that, you know, a lot on uh, for me on Kinky. So I do know that that, you know, is a big, big benefit. But, uh, you know, since this show, Broadway Biz, is really about how, well, Broadway, but also the West End, marries its artistic side with its financial side, what happens or how do you handle when a producer, let's just say such as myself, who's, you know, on the other side of the pond, the director wants something or the producer thinks he wants something and uh, financially it just doesn't make sense or isn't feasible, uh, things like that. How do you find that you deal with those kinds of situations? We, we would normally take a view um, we would hopefully know the producer well enough to know what the producer might do. And we would get on and do what we think he might do, but always leave the the door open to adjust whatever we're doing in case we haven't got it quite right or the right nuance. But we wouldn't normally spend any extra money or make any decision to spend big money without the producer's firm agreement. Uh, if there was an emergency and something had to be done, then we'd take responsibility, we'd do it, and we'd tell the producer afterwards what we'd had to do, why, and why there was no chance to get in touch with him and check first. Well, you know, I always appreciated that because every decision you guys did make for us turned out to be the right one. So I just uh, I, I wanted to know what the process was because the outcome was always great. Nick, I want to take a step back in time for a moment because um, I've known you for a long time, but I, I don't really know how you got started in this business. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what was your route into producing um, and if you, in fact, remember the very first show you produced. I sort of got an interest in the theater when I was at school. I was very lucky. I went to a a school that actually had a small theatre, and then I went to another school that had a slightly larger theatre. And I always enjoyed the sort of the backstage side of it. And then um, when I went to Cambridge, I spent a lot of time with the sort of the local student societies there, including the Footlights and the Marlowe and the ADC and all the other ones. And uh, when I left Cambridge, I actually wasn't sure whether I could make a living in the theatre. So I actually went into the film industry, which seemed even more chancy than the theatre. And I worked for a, a guy called Brian Forbes for many years. And then that sort of stopped for various reasons. Mainly, I think I couldn't get a union card and I needed a union card. So I sort of became an agent next and looked after actors and actresses. And then I met somebody one night at a party. And um, he was looking for somebody to run his theatre company, theatre production company in London. And he said, did I want to do it? So I said yes and sort of jumped in with very, very little experience and really learnt most of it on the job. The first show I ever actually produced was uh, was when I was an agent and it was a, an old play called The Ghost Train by Arnold Ridley, who subsequently was better known as one of the actors in the television series over here called Dad's Army. Um, and I have to tell you, it lost every single penny and more. <laughs> and it was, and I had a wonder... Despite that, it was quite an enjoyable experience. And so, you know, well, you know what the drug's like, how I carried on taking it and then uh, went, went, on, went on to do various other shows over the years. 
That, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think everybody who who sort of produces has to have that one thing. And it usually helps when it's early in his career, that one show that just, you know, sort of tanks. It's almost like you have to get it out of the way first, and then you learn from that. Did you learn anything um, from that show that so early in your career uh, didn't work? Yeah, I, I learned a lot from it. I think I learned not to be quite as trusting was probably the most important lesson. But but also, you know, I, you know the extraordinary thing is how I find that um, even though I've been you know, in, in, in theatre and producing for many, many years. I'm still learning today. You know, there's, there's always something to learn. And that's one of the things yeah. that I find really challenging about it. I have an extremely low boredom threshold. So I love going on to the next production. And when I'm working with other people, be it, you know, whether we're just managing for another producer or whether we're producing for ourselves, I always find there's something for me to learn. That's, you know, I say the same thing. Uh, I didn't realize you have a low threshold for boredom. Uh, next time I see you, I'll speak quickly. Uh, <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, I, I agree. Every show I do, I try to learn something from it, both the hits and the flops, right? If, if I always say that oh, yeah. the day you can't stop learning something is the day you should just hang it up. One of, you mentioned this a few moments ago, but and one of the things I'm always most impressed about, not only in in the West End, but with Playful in particular, is that you do uh, produce a lot of new works. Can you walk us through how you and your your partners, you know, manage to do that? Commit to new works, nurture new works, get them on things like that. Yeah, I mean, we usually have a few uh, in development at any one time. I mean, you know, s scripts that we're interested in, new scripts that we're developing or whatever. And provided the development process for the script goes well, then, you know, one keeps pursuing it. Um, and on the play side, which, as I say, we still do quite a lot of, you know, if you've then got a play that you think is good, then it's really how you can uh, produce that ultimately to get it into the commercial theater and and make some money one hopes but you know one starts off with the play and you think well you know there is there isn't a star role um can we get such and such a person to star in it or can we get one of the established theaters to present it with us and they do the initial presentation and then we would move it into a commercial uh, West End Theatre afterwards. We developed quite a lot of work with uh, some of the leading not-for-profits here, you know, and they're, they're, I mean, part of the scene over here, as you know, is that we have a, a very large subsidised not-for-profit sector, which is uh, basically government-funded, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it, uh, and certainly all for, with charitable status. And we can be very helpful to them and they can be very helpful to us when we do productions together because we can find money or talent or whatever that they need for the show. They can help us, you know, get the show on because they have a building that they can put it on in. They have a, you know, a, a production manager. They have a production team there. They may have a casting director, etc. you know. So we've over the years done those sort of shows with a lot of very well-established small 
not-for-profit theatres in, in, in and out of London. I mean, we've worked with the Donmar, the Royal Court, you know, we've worked with the RSC, um, we've worked with, you know, Sheffield Crucible, we've worked with uh, uh, you know, the Chichester Festival Theatre. I mean, all of them, Birmingham Repertory, et cetera, all the, all the really good ones. It's a very good way of developing the work that we want to try out and see if it's commercial. If we get a big star into a into a show, then we probably don't go that route. We maybe just go straight into the West End. But it's got so much more risky in the West End now that when you've got a play that doesn't necessarily have a huge star role in or you can't attract a big star into, it is often much easier to go via one of the not-for-profit theatres and not take the risk straight away into town. You know, Nick, everyone's always said for many years, including including even now, and I once actually did an interview with NPR about the difference of ticket prices in New York versus London. You know, there's there's a lot of truth to that. Can you talk a little bit about what that is about? Why it is that differential exists? I mean, Broadway is much much more expensive than the West End. It is more unionized. It is more organized in a structural way, um, everyone taking the deals, all the deals, uh, more seriously. I think that, you know, the the British um, enjoy the theatre. It's an art form. And on Broadway, the Americans enjoy the theatre. But as far as putting the shows on over there, it's much more of a business. And, um, you know, we are... uh, producing cheaper because people are more enthusiastic. People don't expect to earn the high salaries here that they do in New York. And we can do it a lot cheaper. And I mean, you know, your example is probably now, you know, you could put a play on over here, like we moved hangmen from the Royal Court into the West End with Robert Fox. And, you know, that I think cost something like £600,000 to move. And when Robert took it to Broadway, where, of course, it it um, suffered from all the COVID closures and stuff. But, you know, he was re- he was struggling, he told me at the time, to keep the budget to $4 million. And, you know, uh, and that was a play that had been done, you know, Everyone knew what they were doing. The set was around. It went into the Atlantic, uh, big hit there. Uh, but it still costs the best part of four million to to open it on Broadway. And it's yeah, that's the that's that's the difference. I mean, your your load in costs so much more than our get in. I mean, we'll budget to get a play in, you know, for for twenty, thirty thousand pounds. And, you know, with you, it's even a small play over there is going to cost you, you know, four, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars. And then, of course, you know, your your wages are much higher than ours. Uh, you know, I think our, our minimum range is around sort of six fifty to seven hundred pounds for an actor. And your minimum, I think now is what, over fifteen hundred dollars or whatever it is. I mean, what I think is very impressive about Broadway is that you do have actors over there that are Broadway stars who aren't necessarily stars outside of the theatre. We find that quite difficult over here. It's 
difficult to be, you can become a theatre star, uh, but you probably need to do a bit of television and a bit of film as well. I mean, uh, Ian McKellen, for instance, for years and years did lots and lots of theatre, but it wasn't until he started doing the big movies uh, that he became a real star as opposed to, you know, a theatre star that you probably might not have been able to raise money on his name. Well, now, obviously, you can raise money on his name and have been able to for the last, you know, 20 or more years. But, you know, until he actually got some of the film stuff going and became a film star as, as well as a theatre star. Yeah, that's what I find amazing um, and a big difference over there. You will get people like that. You'll get someone like Daniel Radcliffe, um, who clearly doesn't need to, you know, come back to the theater on a break or a hiatus and, um, you know, really work hard. It is hard work being in a show. And uh, he clearly doesn't need to add that to his, uh, you know, his, his daily grind, but they do. He does. I think that is amazing. And I do think it is a big difference here. We do get the occasional uh, big TV star, that or movie star that comes, you know, back to Broadway, but it's rare and um, it's usually very expensive and very costly. You know, someone like a Hugh Jackman or somebody like that, it's very rare to get him to commit, you know, and that's the other problem too that we have here. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the commitment time that a, a star would need in the UK versus uh, the US. You, you seem to have very short seasons, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, where you know, we don't, we can't seem to make it work with anything less than 16 or 20. How, how does that work? Well, I think, I think the economic model is very different over here. And you can make good money off a short season with a big star, with the star getting, you know, they're, they're just rewards. Um, and if they're only available for a very short time, they may not get quite as much money. It's what I was saying earlier, you know, it's still possible to make money if you get a hit play over here. And you can you can make money on, on a play uh, in probably, you know, 10 or 12 weeks after the opening night, because the costs are so much lower. Uh, and the whole economic model is different. And, you know, if you get a big star in a play, um, you know, it would be, I mean, it's it's not uh, impossible that you could double or treble your, um, your, 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 your return on the capital uh, in, in the space of, you know, 12 weeks or whatever. That, that is astounding when I think about the economics here. It's astounding. It's like, yeah, I mean, when we were, we worked with um, Stuart Thompson um, on one of the last productions he did, which was No Man's Land with Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart. And I mean, that made enough money in London to recoup its loss on Broadway, where it had been done in a repertoire, and this was just the only single play done. And I think the investors got, you know, three times their money back just from a, a limited season in London. And we, we did an NT live, uh, live capture of it as well, which added to the investors' profits and so on. So if you're lucky enough to get a hit, you know, you can do it. And that was only in Wyndham's, which seats, what, 700, 750 people. That's also what's stunning to me. The theaters in London are much smaller. They're, they're, some of them are, can be in the hundreds like that, whereas you know, a small theater for us over here is, is 1,000, 1,100, something like that. 
Uh, Nick, I wanted to take a little left turn, if you will, if we could, uh, and talk about UK touring, because that's another big, big difference between the US and the UK. Um, and I know you have toured many, many shows. What are some of the considerations you think about when you decide to take a show on tour in the UK? Well, I think you, you have to think about um, what, what market it's going to appeal to and how broad that market is, how, how big the theatres can be that you play it in and how long it can run in each market. Uh, the biggest difference between UK touring and US touring is that um, in the States, as I understand it, you, you normally get more or less a guarantee of your costs plus an upside if, if there is one. Whereas over here, most of the touring deals are done on risk. So, you know, you might get a, a, a split of the box office of 80, 20 or whatever you get. But the risk is the producers as well as the theatres, because if you play to ghastly business, then you're not getting any money and you're losing. And there's no guarantee for the producer that he will make money touring. So you have to be very, very careful what you do, how you do it, and how you plan it, and how long you sit down in dates. And it's it's an ever-changing environment. You know, some years, this date is the date everyone wants, and you want to go to that place because they're doing really good business. And then, you know, you suddenly find three years later, you go back there with another show. And it's not doing very good business because the whole theatre in that area has slipped for some reason. I mean, the management's changed. The marketing guy who runs it has changed. You know, whoever's, whoever's changed has changed and the whole thing doesn't work quite as well. So you have to keep your finger a bit on that pulse and you have to be prepared to take the risk. Um, you can still make good money, but the risk is much, much higher than in the States. And do a lot of these theaters in the major cities outside of London have what we call subscriptions, uh, where they sell a season in advance and the show, your show that goes in there would be part of that season and you'd be guaranteed a certain amount of, of guaranteed income because they've already sold tickets on a, on a whole season. Do you have that? It's a very good question because what has never worked over here is subscription. I don't know why it doesn't work. It has never, ever worked. It's been tried and tried by everyone. I think that um, the audiences over here in the regions are not necessarily as well-heeled and as wealthy as some of your American audiences are. And to get them to buy you know, five plays in advance when they might not, or five shows, sorry, in advance when they might not see one or might not enjoy one of them is very difficult. They tend to be more selective. The theatres tend to have several different audiences. You know, they'll have an, a local audience that likes coming to ballet, say, uh, you know, for the three weeks a year they do ballet or that wants to come and see Glyndebourne touring for the week a year they get Glyndebourne and then wants to come and see plays and wants to come and see musicals. But they're, all those audiences are slightly different constituency. Some of them may go and see everything. But a lot of them will just think, oh, well, you know, I really fancy going to see Kinky Boots. That sounds great fun. So they trot off to see Kinky Boots. But the following week, you know, Ian McKellen's there starring in a show and they don't go and see it because they're the musical audience and they don't want to see a play. 
when there's a big new popular musical out, you know, they'll push the prices up on that show. And you do see other shows sometimes suffering, you know, because, uh, I, I don't know, Matilda's out and touring about, you know, um, the second tour of Shrek, which we did at the same time, didn't do as well as we thought it should have done. I mean, it recouped, but it didn't do as well as we thought it should have done. And I think it was partly because, you know, there was a big new family show out around the same time that was probably costing more, you know, because we we were out the second time, which is always more difficult. You know, the first time we toured Shrek, it did very well. The second time, it just about broke even. You know, it's, it's sort of, it's it's a strange market, very strange market. And it's it can be quite fickle. <laughs> and you must be very, very cognizant when you book a theatre uh, how much space or how much time there is between uh, the show that was in before you and the show that's coming in after you, correct? Because as you say, if it's not subscription, uh, I would imagine that many people can't afford to to see two shows, you know, in, you know, week after week, you know, back to back. So is that something you, you take into consideration too, uh, the spacing and what's before you and what's after you in that particular theater? As much as we can, we do. And we are very aware that there are certain shows that will be touring at the same time as we are where we really don't want to clash with them. So we don't want to not only be too close to them in playing weeks, but we also you know, want to make sure that the booking and the on sale and all that stuff doesn't clash with them. You know, when we take uh, Wicked out on tour in the UK, for instance, you know, we are very careful to make sure that we avoid, for instance, The Lion King, because, you know, there's two, two big shows there that really can do much better if they stay apart. So, I mean, we would we would ring up the uh, the guy who booked Lion King and say, when are you going where? What are you doing? How do we avoid you? How do you avoid us? You know, and that sort of stuff. Um, and one tends to do that with those. And then with the not-so-big blockbusters, one tends to make sure that you are not going to clash with something that is, um, you know, real competition. Because it's not going to do either of you any good. Whichever one is going to take the more more money, it's still not going to take as much if there's real competition that's close by. I mean, if there's six months apart, three months apart, then you know you're fine. But you have to be careful. And that is a big difference than than what we do here in the U.S. As I say, we do have subscriptions, so because people pre-buy their their tickets uh, so far in advance, that. In some cases, they are seeing two blockbusters, you know, a few weeks apart uh, with maybe a show that's not such a blockbuster uh, in between. And usually that works out okay. I mean, every producer hopes for single ticket sales. But in a lot of these major cities in the U.S., you are walking into a theater that has already sold a million dollars worth of tickets, you know, of the season. So for your particular show, we call it you know, the load-in, where, where sometimes you go into a theater with a million-dollar load-in, and, that, you know, that's never a bad thing. Well, it's a fantastic luxury, Hal, you know, to have to have that uh, safety, safety net. We, we would love to have it here. Of course, part of the problem with this country is that it's um, much smaller than the States, so the markets tend to overlap and tend to be closer to each other. So, you know, if you live in Leeds, you can go to the theater in Bradford very easily. 
So it would be very difficult to take the same show to the two theatres uh, unless there was sort of nine months between them or whatever, because you will eat, eat the audience up. You know, and those markets are much smaller here. You know, your cities are huge. You know, London's a big city, and then you've got Manchester and Birmingham as a big cities, you know, and Edinburgh. But, you know, they're all quite close together. You know, the country's only, what, three or 400 miles long, 400 miles, whatever it is, from London to Edinburgh. It seems so big to me every time <laughs> I go there. I'm like, wow, this is huge. Nick, you, I wanted to ask you a question that that, you know, just – there is no definitive answer, but I, I, I'm curious as to your opinion on this. You, you mentioned a few minutes ago that, you know, audiences are very fickle. Uh, have you noticed over the course of your career or even over the last 10, 15 years that that tastes and what audiences are looking for have changed uh, in a way that makes a difference to to what they see and what you produce and things like that. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I think that um, in in London the musicals have become much more important, and in the in the UK regions the musicals have become much bigger, much more important, much more of a sort of blockbuster brand. And I think that the uh, the audiences have become more choosy as to what they go and see. And, you know, it's difficult now in the West End, certainly, and in the regions as well, to sell a play without a big star in it. Whereas, you know, when I was when I was much younger and Michael Codrum was in his heyday producing the most fantastic work, by, new, by then new authors like Harold Pinter and so on. He didn't necessarily need a big star in the play. He could, he could get away with or brilliantly produce the right cast in the play without a big star to sell it, and the audiences would still come then. It's much more difficult to do that now. You know, however, however good the play is, uh, it's more difficult to make it work unless you've got that unique selling point of something. I mean, be it the star, be it the fact that it's just come in from the Donmar warehouse with great reviews or whatever, you know, it's much more difficult to get the audiences to be adventurous, I think. You know, they've got so much adventure in this country to go in in, the, in our subsidized sector, you know. They can go to the National Theatre, they can go to the Royal Court, they can go wherever in London. And, you know, and it's probably cheaper than coming into the West End. And, you know, they will probably get something that's a bit more adventurous uh, sometimes. And, you know, you just think it, it's become more tricky to get the plays that are not star-driven or the musicals that are not, you know, established brands to work. And I think certainly, as I say, we do more musicals now. Uh, a lot of them come over from the States. You're much better over there probably developing and producing new musicals than we are. Um, we don't quite have that uh, resource, talent, whatever it is we're missing. We've got a lot of talent here, but it doesn't always seem to be focused on the musical theatre because a lot of the talent here has come up from, from the universities into the subsidised theatres and works much more from a, an intellectual basis uh, into, uh, into plays, which have a big, big development and audience in the in the subsidized theater. So, you know, the whole thing becomes slightly differently balanced. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. 
Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Nick, I also, I wanted to take a second and ask you to share a little bit about stage one, how that came about, how that works, because I think it's a, it's an incredible thing that you guys do that. Can you, can you tell us a little about stage one? I ran stage one for about 22 or 23 years, um, uh, but I haven't um, had any close involvement with it for the last eight or nine years. It's now run by a producer called Joe Smith, who's doing a wonderful job with it. But it was originally set up to try and help the commercial theatre with with uh, with commercial investment, and it was set up as a fund that rotated. So you and the fund invested the money. And, you know, what came back got reinvested and so on. And while I was there, we then developed that in many directions, particularly into uh, developing new producers and running workshops for them and running, um, helping them raise more than just the normal amount of money that we would put in. We did a whole load of development work with, with new producers. We set up a big endowment fund which uh, was supported by all the producers in London who used to still do give a pair or two pairs or three pairs of seats a week to the to the stage one endowment fund it, it's 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 extraordinary how successful this has been and it now run not only runs workshops for new producers but you know it's got it's got now three or four schemes running which go into the regions and help producers there um you know we they have a a system now whereby you can take on an apprentice from stage one um uh, who's sponsored by stage one so goes to work in a producer's office and part of their salary is paid by stage one and the other part is paid by the producer and it's great because it really gives people who want to produce a chance to put their toe in the water find out if they have any aptitude for it find out the basics about what it's about and um, hopefully go on to, to, to be successful producers. I think that is, that is amazing. I, I wanted specifically to talk to you about that because I think uh, it, it is amazing as you, as you must know or, th- or think that producing isn't something that you can read from a textbook. It has to, you have to be in it to, to actually absorb the nuances of it. Can you talk a little bit about how workshops, you mentioned workshops and things like that, are structured for these, you know, up and coming and mentorees of uh, producing? Yes, I mean, they're, they're normally, um, I mean, the, the, the regular ones are normally done every 
six months, every three months, whatever. And they're probably a, a three-day session. So they probably start on a Thursday lunchtime and finish on a Saturday afternoon, two and a half days, three days. Uh, and they cover, they give a flavor and a taste and cover sort of aspects of producing, you know, from uh, budgeting to marketing to acquiring rights to theatre deals to whatever. Um, and obviously they don't have in that time an awful lot of time to go into the absolute minutiae and the details, but they give a very good overall uh, picture of how the commercial theatre works. And a lot of people that go on those workshops, you know, are people actually from the subsidised theatre, the not-for-profit theatre as well, because they all want to know how the commercial theatre works, because when they next come to do a deal with one of us, they want to know how it works and how they exploit their productions with us. So, you know, but no, they're, they're, they're good. And then they also do other sort of one-off workshops and things and courses and things like that. But it's um, it's good. And then those those people who attend those workshops at times are placed with a mentor, a working producer, and interns for that person and works alongside that person. Is that? Uh, that's correct. Yes. I mean, you wouldn't normally get that internship unless you've done the the workshop course. I mean, we're playful. Um, you know, when well, our, our younger uh, team. Uh, who aren't as experienced, you know, and are sort of the production assistants on shows. If they haven't done the stage one workshop, we'll send them on it and pay for them to go on it. Well, if I attend that workshop, Nick, um, can I be then assigned to you as your intern? Because I think there's a ton to learn. <laughs> you know, I'd agree if you'd agree. Yes, Hal, you're very welcome, but... <laughs> yeah, I, th I think I think you should I think you should be probably one of the one of the mentors, not one of the mentors. <laughs> You're too way too kind. <laughs> uh, well, Nick, I know we we you know as they say, all good things must come to an end, and I am so grateful and thank you for sharing your time with us today. Um, I know our listeners will will be thrilled to hear how things work from your perspective. Uh, as we say, on the other side of the pond. But before you go, uh, I do have a section of the program, which is uh, called Rapid Fire Questions. I'm going to ask you three uh, questions. Don't worry, they're not, they're not scary. But I, all I ask is that you answer them with the first thing that comes into your head. Please don't overthink it. Just the first thing that pops into your head, okay? So here's number one. Easy. What is your favorite musical? Well, it's not as easy as it sounds, Hal. I, I, I think I think I think I've got several because I have rather broad taste. But I, I I love My Fair Lady. I love Sweeney Todd. I love Kinky Boots. Um, you know, there are there's, I can't I can't choose between those sort of three or four. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. This wasn't meant to be Sophie's choice. You don't have to kill two to have one. Um, <laughs> the second one is what is the wackiest moment you've ever experienced in the theater? And by wacky, I mean silly, ridiculous. One of those, I can't believe I just saw that. Uh, what is that, that moment for you? Many years ago, I did a play called Ducking Out, which Mike Ockrent directed. And um, it, it was star-driven with uh, Warren Mitchell and Leslie Sands and a lot of lo English local stars. And the final scene was Warren Mitchell in bed. And the whole family, Leslie Sands and the rest of the cast, were all gathered around his bed. 
And one of the actors who will remain nameless, uh, but a very lovely Irish actor, had had one too many that night. And he walked in, <laughs> he walked, he walked in, this was the end of Act Two, and he hadn't been in Act One, but he'd been somewhere else, I think, in Act One. And he walked in and he took one look at Warren in the bed and one look at Leslie sitting by the bed. Warren was meant to be dying in the bed at this point, or his character was. And um, took one look at them. And he said, well, fuck this for a laugh. He walked down to the front of the stage, jumped off it and went out through the stalls. <laughs> and was the audience and, like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> yeah. And, nobody, and of course, poor, poor Warren immediately ducked under the bed covers to avoid whatever was going on. And poor old Leslie, who was sitting there sort of mourning his brother who was, who was dying in the play, um, had to cope and get, get the rest of the cast out of the mess. Oh, that's hilarious. So, and the third question relates to that. So from that wacky moment, the if I were your mentoree, the lesson you would teach me from that would be? Um, well, al- alcohol can, is great fun and we all love it, but you just have to be careful. And once, once you've got somebody who's an alcoholic, you really need to look after them because it's a re- really bad disease, particularly in a member of your cast. And this guy had had a, had a history of being an alcoholic, which was sad. What a great lesson. It's true, true, true. Nick Salmon, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, you're one of my favorite people, not only in, in the U.S., but in the U.K. too. And I look forward, literally, to the day when I can fly over there and you, you and I can have one of our infamous lunches or dinners. Thank you for joining us today. Be well, be safe. And uh, I'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you very much for having me, Hal. It's great to talk to you, and I look forward to seeing you soon, too. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Broadway Biz is part of the Broadway Podcast Network, is produced by Dylan Marie Parent and Kevin Connor, and is edited by Derek Gunther. Our theme music is by Nell Benjamin and Larry O'Keefe. Be sure to subscribe to Broadway Biz and follow us on Instagram at Broadway Biz Podcast. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.